0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're talking to professionals within the built environment who work to inform people in government and the public that architecture across many spectrums can benefit the community. Our guest in this episode is April McCabe, who is a town planner and the director of social strategy and engagement at the planning studio, and the former policy manager and principal policy advisor to the Lord Mayor of Sydney. April shares how her background in geography shaped her understanding of placemaking, how empathy informs the design of cities for all people, and the importance of balancing streetscapes and public open space with growing city skylines. I'll now pass over to Sally Sue, who is an Imagine Committee member based in New South Wales. Let's jump in.
1: Hello, April. Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining us today. It's really good to have you on our episode. Great to be here. Really excited to speak to everyone today. (laughs) Um, Today, our topic here is around advocacy and politics, and I think we're very interested in your background and how you really fell into this space, because I think much of your work really does involve advocacy and politics, but more broadly, it is really for the community and um, our general public. Can you tell us a bit more on yourself and why you work in this space
2: yeah it's interesting you use the term fell into I think that I feel sometimes that my career has been a more meandering path than what I thought it would ever be politics has always been something I've been interested in um, at university I was a member of the Australian Democrats and so there was there's always been something about politics that I've been drawn to and I think that cities are always something that I've always loved and that idea of how we can influence the shape of our cities, which in turn I think shapes our communities. What our cities look and feel like, I think helps to sort of create the scene for what our communities can look and feel like as well. And so. Working in government's always been something that's the primary place of my career, and working in strategic planning in local councils, um, both here and overseas, and then working in territory government in the ACT. And then I stumbled across the the job with Clover Moore as her planning advisor, and then ultimately her principal policy advisor with the team. So a pretty amazing privilege to be the centre of decision making for Australia's global city, one that's growing, one that's really exciting. And to sort of, I suppose, see from both sides, those decision making, how important advocacy is, what influence we can play. And from the smallest influence of um, responding to someone's concerns and helping them navigate through a process can be just as powerful as advocating to federal and state government for massive changes. So I think I feel really privileged that my career has, has led me on this journey and now just starting a new business. I'm the director of social strategy and engagement at, at the planning studio. And I think for me, that really sums up where my passions lie at the moment as well in planning and
1: city making. That's excellent. So we can hear from your background. You're not just a planner, (laughs) which I think is really important to mention because I think more often than not, town planning is generally a great profession. They contribute greatly to our society. Mm -hmm. How do you take that profession and be move it beyond that? Because you call yourself an urban sociologist. You have many, many other endeavors that help really allow you to advocate and leverage your skills to contribute to our community.
2: Yeah, it was really funny. I, I, someone once told me about planning not being glamorous and I think that while it's not glamorous I think it's it's a massive responsibility and I think where my broad interest came from was I first studied geography human geography and sociology um, at university and I think that that's really shaped uh, my planning practice and I, I think it's just a, a general love for and curiosity like for me I love design, and um, but I also really want to understand. The sort of the the texture and the fabric of cities. What what makes it tick? What's in between the buildings? And I suppose that's what has led me into that place making kind of realm to understand who is occupying those spaces and importantly who's not occupying those spaces and why. So I think that that's that's what it's the complexity. I love you know I think it's it's that thing as a kid I always loved puzzles, and so I think for me cities are these massive puzzles to solve and to kind of. To talk to people and um, I was chatting to a colleague and it's it's about stories we have this as planners I see us as having this privilege of being able to take and listen to people's stories and then translating that into policies about how our cities are built how they function how they're structured Um, and I think that's a massive responsibility I think sometimes planners don't you know, one of my biggest frustrations is planners don't shout from the rooftops as much as other built environment professionals about that role and responsibility that they play. And it's it's always funny. I'm involved um, with parlor, and um, and I, I do sort of get involved a lot with the architecture and things like that. So I'm always pretty happy that the architectural fraternity has allowed a planner to infiltrate their ranks. So um, so I think it's I think it's it's I just enjoy talking to people whether it's community members about what their place means to them whether it's design professionals and talking you know we were talking earlier and um, understanding because i think it's it's it means something different to
1: everybody and
2: there's these layers that i
1: love absolutely so if we take it back to your early childhood and even where you grow up Mm -hmm. growing up in newcastle has that upbringing and that early years um, shape the way you see place and how has that evolved as you began your career and what you undertake now and involved in city planning? Yeah, I, I,
2: I don't know if it, I, I'm not sure if Newcastle a place shaped it. I think studying geography shaped it. And then also when I was at university, University of Newcastle studying geography um, I had some amazing lecturers who kept talking about, one in particular spoke about her area of study, which was um, memory and how places are able to create memory and what that means and how do we embed memory into our spaces and places. So I think that I realised that for me that was the fascinating, and that brought the geography and sociology together. It's, it's understanding, you know, there's a, there's a psychological understanding to cities that I really kind of quite enjoy understanding and um and that's just not the people in it but um the cities themselves you know you you go to people will say Australia Newcastle it's it's a place that you can like for me Newcastle's a place I slow down and breathe I feel my body actually slowing and my breath slowing and then I come back to Sydney and there's this energy and there's this fast pace and there's this and so I think that I find that really fascinating and powerful that these places can actually have a influence on your physiology when you're in the place and what that means. So I think for me growing up in, in Newcastle, it's that connection to nature. It's that, um, it's, it's the friendliness. It's um, walking down the street and, and people just randomly, just in the morning, if you're walking the dog saying hi. It's, and I think that shaped that really strong sense of community and why that's really important, and I think it grounds you. There's a there's a grounding to um, uh, an identity. I think I realised as well there's a really, growing up in Newcastle, you, um, if you were born there, you were classed as an Overcastrian. It doesn't matter if you lived there for you know, 90% of your life. If you're not born there, you're not an (laughs) overcast. And I think again, that probably, again, influences that idea of um, how we connect and identify with places and what does that mean? And very much about the inclusion and exclusion of places, whether it's conscious or subconscious. So there's, I think over the years, I've realized there has been influences um, of growing up, but um, yeah, I, I I just think over time, I just keep learning new things and finding new things and um it's it's that exploration the urban exploration that i love so
1: excellent and uh, that reminds me of our earlier conversations we've had chats about the importance of introducing the idea of place to a general audience Mm. and I think I've been privileged enough in our profession we're able to understand that word but we do also use it in a particular context Mm. as an architect I use it to kind of encompass the public spaces public realm sometimes extends to landscape design the interstitial pockets within cities Mm. and it's something I'm very very familiar with and actively look for but I think from your point of view as you work in the areas you work in Mm -hmm. you get to meet the audience and you get to meet the community every individual the public that actually uses the space so when asked do you how do you change or do you use a different language when you introduce that concept how do you encourage them to participate in that discussion because
2: yeah it's, it's a great question because I think that place and place making have become this I think a very loose term for a lot of things. And I think sometimes that I have a colleague that always talks about placemaking, it's a process, not an outcome. And I think that for me, I think place is is both the physical, it's the tangible and the intangible for me. It's you know, it's the recognition that the buildings and the physical spaces that you spoke about shape our experience it's where we create memory and where we can assign memory it's the the idea of walking through a space being able to go oh that's right I did this here and so it, it, so you're adding these layers of meaning to a place um, an ordinary place that if 20 people walk past the same place that their memory and their experience would be completely different and so I think that that's for me the places and spaces are where we can connect it's for me importantly it's where we can share ideas where we can debate issues and where we can express this sort of collective grief joy celebration we can protest i think places are where our civic rights and democracy happen and i think it's so integral to our cities to have this freedom of place but that's the complexity. And I think I was, I was, you know, we've spoken about Jess Scully's book Glimpses of Utopia, which I'm a big fan of and got a lot of post-it notes marking the pages that, you know, are important. But I was having a bit of a read in preparation for today. And she talks about, and I think it encapsulates this idea of place really well, where she says, places are, you can find yourself, be yourself and find your people.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think for me, that's exactly what this idea of, that's the ultimate aim of place when we talk about place. It's your space, it's where you can find yourself, be yourself and find your people around you. And the structures around us sort of shape that experience.
1: That's amazing. We can definitely hear the passion in your yes. voice. <laughs> Much of Jess's book is about social impact and its values. You yeah. also have started yeah, to also be able to elevate some voices and make a difference to the women that is participating in this space. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about how that came about and what have you been able to yeah. discover from that? I think it's a
2: recognition that women are contributing to our cities all the time and I think they add a different voice. But, like a lot of things, you know, we, the idea of gender inequity has been, it's emerged over the last sort of 10 years as being something that uh, is not confined to the fringes or the feminist movement, but it's become part of our um, general parlance in society, talking about what does gender mean. And I think that you place a different lens over cities, if you place that female lens over a city, you get a completely different view of what that looks like. And that's shaped by our experiences or, and, and I think that also to recognising that that gender lens isn't just one, it's not homogenous, it's multi layered because all women aren't, <laughs> you know, then we're not all the same. Um, and so it, 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 it sh- it's shaped. And I think urbanists is, is a bit of a recognition of, of the fact that women do think differently that we're all contributing to the city, but like in a lot of areas, a lot of the decision-making, a lot of the voices that we're hearing about cities and about uh, communities is coming from males. And so for urbanists for me, um, I came back from the UK and uh, wanted to reconnect, but a lot of the planning at that time was a lot of grey suited grey haired males telling us what new legislation and that wasn't my thing and so i decided to put it out there and i have to say it's been one of the best decisions i've made because it really for me it was never about a built environment network it was about a network of women who love cities and want to contribute positively to the city or their community so our network is really a lot of obviously designers, planners, um, building environment professionals, but we have a lot of academics, have artists, you know, people working in the community services spaces and things like that. And the idea is just to create a platform for this confluence of ideas and to share stories. I think it's, we learn from experiences. The idea is about being positive. It's this, this optimism about we can do better and you don't need to be this big influential figure. Our platform is not for the people that we hear a lot from. It's it's for people who are working in the space every day, who, and also to a lot of women, don't believe that they're making a significant contribution. So we wanna elevate that and say, actually you are, and here's all these people in front of you who are really interested in your story. Um, And so, yeah, it's been incredibly rewarding. I've met these amazing women that just do some really interesting things and I think the network continues to grow and um, hopefully this year we'll, we'll be able to I'll be able to find a bit more time to get a few more things up so that
1: is so impressive. I really love hearing these stories because I think it's uh, really close to my heart because yeah. I think as we design spaces, more often than not, you can apply rules to it, yeah. but really these spaces are for people. And yeah. you've touched on community engagement, yeah. and it's such a big component of work that sometimes is overlooked yeah. or purely undertaken just as a process. <laughs> so I think um, I'd be interested to hear you talk more about it on in your work uh, in your community engagement work, we talked about earlier on on understanding the influence of politics, understanding why participation is important, but we also recognise that not many of them understand how to articulate their views or even, like you said, think that they'll make a difference if they show up. Yeah. Can you give us an example that or previous work that touches on that and how that's important as a journey for us to embrace?
2: Yeah, I mean it's 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 something that so David Harvey is a political geographer who I have read a number of his stuff and I, it's it's one of those tenets I keep going back to in my work, and um, I've got it written down here it, one of the things he says is the right to the city is far more than the individual liberty to access urban resources. It is the right to change ourselves by changing the city. The freedom to make and remake our cities and ourselves is one of the most precious yet most neglected of our human rights. And I think for me, community engagement is absolutely delivering on that human right. It's understanding for us as planners, designers, as built environments, city makers, we need to understand the kind of city that we're trying to create but who are we creating them for and I think importantly we need to understand who are we excluding from that as well because if we the the new agenda the UN um, talks about a city for all you see a lot of policies from councils about being a city for all but I think that there's a lot of words and I don't know if that's actually translating because I think for me, it's a city for all the people in which it's in our sphere of influence, or who look like us. And there's a, I think it's really important because if we want cities that are generous, if we want cities that are um, resilient, sustainable, if we want communities who um, who are empathetic, we need to go out there and talk to people. And for me, community engagement is really about revealing. The and I think that's where the psychology comes in. It's kind of like giving people um, the space and the invitation. I think that's the most important thing for me. It's about inviting people to come and tell me their story, about creating a space for them to feel like they are the experts in their local area because they are, they live there. And that they're expressing their experience is actually a really important part of policy making. And one of the recent projects I did um, while in my previous job was um, we worked for the city of Sydney in C40 doing a piece of research about women in transport. So um, the Women for Climate initiative as part of C40 do case studies and they wanted to do one on Sydney about how do we get women um, to use walking and cycling as their primary mode of transport and what are the barriers to doing that? And I think just being able to talk to those women and to go and experience that myself, to feel and, and then being able to translate that into recommendations. And what was really interesting was a technique we used for the engagement with policy makers, with academics, with experts was we created scenarios from the stories of the women we interviewed. And we asked them to put themselves in their shoes. And it was really powerful the feedback we got because particularly from uh, the males in the room, who said, I've never considered, it was really hard for me for the first 10 minutes to imagine what it would be like to be a young woman of colour living in Western Sydney, who has to rely on public transport to move and who's not getting home till nine o'clock at night because I don't know what that is. And so the question we put to them, well, as a, as a bigger existential question, I think <laughs> was, well, how can we claim to be planning for a city for all? When in an exercise like this, it takes, we can't even imagine what that might be. So for my, I suppose my challenge to all planners, and that is if you can't imagine what it's like for someone who is absolutely different to you, then go and talk to someone and understand their experience. So that can influence your view on how we might plan for cities. And I think that goes to politics as well, is again, talking to Jess a lot, and, and she's really passionate about, if we don't have people in politics who are representative of who we are, then how, how can we actually make change that's going to benefit all of us? At the moment, we're only creating change or policy for the loudest voices. And so again it's that ability to almost tune your ear into hear what who's not speaking who's not and rather than I think we focus very much on the people who scream the loudest I want to focus on the people who I'm not hearing from at all and so I think that that's for me where that importance of community engagement comes from and genuine engagement and you know what it's not it's not complex there's all these kind of great tools out there and all the rest of it, but at the end of the day, people just want to have a chat. And it's about sitting and listening to people and and being honest and and trust, authentic and trust. That's the big thing and being able to... For me, I think it's a real responsibility I have that I take very seriously about people walk into those engagements, they're entrusting me with their story and they're, they're relying on me to be able to reflect that through into something that's going to help build their community. Um, And that's a really important thing and a real privilege for me that I do on a daily basis. Um, And some of it's not glamorous, someone, you know, people like to see award-winning kind of fancy things and people have done things online. But for me, it's just the art of the conversation really. And and really hearing people.
1: It's very humble of you to describe it like that because <laughs> uh, on the contrary I think many of our audience might be architects or might be interested in architecture mm. and I think uh, what you've tabled is a very interesting and great perspective mm. because more often than not as architects we are limited to a particular aspect of the work yeah. and would do definitely have impact in what we produce and touch mm. but yes it is probably more seen as a glamorous aspect of it because we, we have design that is tangible that people can yeah. see as I work, that wards are given to buildings yeah. that are standing there for years to come. But I think sometimes we forget that we're designing for people because we get given briefs, we get given yeah. constraints, planning constraints. And in the end, at times, we're talking about building mass, bulk and scale, street addressed, and floor space areas, not to be forgotten. <laughs> yeah, look, and I, and I think that's the reality of what we... And that's the complexity.
2: There is all these competing influences. We have... You know, I, I work in a consultancy. We all have clients who are, are coming to us with a certain expectation. We have planning rules in which have been developed that we have to work within. We have all these constraints sitting there and I think also too the system that we're working on is built on this uh, I suppose in some respects it makes us all fearful to have a conversation up front because there's this expectation that we go to people with something and and I think that it's also too about recognizing that it's not about ensuring people, everyone's involved in decision making. You have to have decision makers and there has to be arbiters of of, of good design or of appropriateness. Um, local councils, are, you know, they're the democratically elected group of people who their community has entrusted them to make decisions. And so, yes, they will go to the community or they should go to the community to ask their thoughts. But I think we're falling into this trap. You know, one of the things that I hear with engagement is like, oh, we want to do a process where we can get agreement. It's like, well, if you want to get a process that you want agreement, then I think you're you're going to be bitterly disappointed because it's not about agreement. Mm -hmm. Actual fact You know, that whole idea of social licence to operate is actually sometimes about recognising that there is going to be a a time when people are not going to like it, but you have to get them to a point of acceptance or even just to tolerate it. That's okay. But I think what we don't do particularly well is be able to sit and work through consequences. I think communities are getting smarter Mm -hmm. about understanding the process and how they can influence the process a lot more. I've noticed over the 20-plus years I've been doing this work, they're starting to know how to work the system a lot more. And their expectations are changing, not only for us as designers and planners, but for their community representatives in council. They're wanting more. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why I go back to the idea of honesty, when I walk into engagement, I always say to my client, and then I translate that to the community and say, "This is what you can influence. This is what you can't, and why." Yeah. And it's 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 setting those boundaries. So I think that the reality is we can't just go to the community all the time. Um, again, last year I was working with a client um, on the did all the engagement for the employment zone reforms that the department's done. And it was great. I loved working with them because they wanted to upfront talk to stakeholders, community and councils and actually genuinely be part of that review process and see engagement as part of the review. And I see it. Engagement for me is primary research. It's not a ticker box. And this is where I have the great privilege in my job where I don't have to take jobs. That is just a ticker box exercise. If they're not willing to do engagement as a genuine part of the process, then I'll let them know an, I'm not the right person for them. So I think, it's, I think it's, there's a balance. It's always a balancing act for us. It's, it's recognising the constraints, it's being honest about those constraints. And, but I think the most important thing is always coming back to, the, to this foundation question of who are we planning or designing for and what's the purpose of what we're doing it for. And hopefully we're doing that for people, we're doing it for community. As you said, buildings are up for a very long time and there's this amazing legacy that architects can, um, can have on the city. There's also too, you know, we all know the buildings we hate. We all know the buildings we love Correct. and the buildings that make cities. Um, you know, I think I was I was watching a documentary on Bjark Engels, mm. and he talks about the Opera House mm. and says that it's one of the very, very few buildings in the world that is a symbol of a nation, and that's a that's a pretty amazing <laughs> thing. But that's the level of influence that buildings can have. Um, I think there's a reason why we have star architects and you know these sort of things because it's I think it's that recognition
1: that it can be a really important part of cities um so that's amazing because what we've talked about here really cuts across work by government places for people and i think i'm really interested in hearing more as we shift gears a little where i think we've lightly touched on it earlier where Sometimes it's seen as right. Sometimes development is seen as a bad thing, yeah. and um, I say that I should expand and broaden it. Where height might be seen as evil <laughs> as well. If floor space areas, dense floor space areas, sometimes is seen as you know, you know, making the city full, mm-hmm. which I think we can further expand that. Lots of people have written that the city is full. Mm-hmm. Is it full? But where should our energy be focused on? Because I think really many of the topics you touched on is about our human scale experience it's the ground plane it is the public spaces and i think more and more it's important to acknowledge that that part of the project is not to be um, overlooked because sometimes for us it's quite hard to convince clients that your investment in the lower floor levels street address and access will be able to in return give you much more higher value in the places you don't see possibly up high mm-hmm. and how how does your work shift to also participate in that area because many of the times private clients may not be encouraging or be open to engagement because it might be seen as a resistance Mm -hmm. whilst we understand public works there's a civic duty in actually embracing that
2: yeah look it's hard and and i think that we also work in a space it's a competitive market so it's, it takes a really brave and confident person to go out there and say, this is what we're thinking. Um, and as I said, it's not appropriate in all, all cases. Um, I think you've also got to pick your stakeholders. So for me, at the start of every process, I do a really big stakeholder mapping exercise. I understand who are the community, who, and when I say community, that could mean residents. Um, that might be impacted by that development it could be the potential tenants of that building it could be um, you know and to understand what they need so it, it's not I think a, a catch-all um, similar to a policy uh, engagement that you you do I agree look I think the ground plan is the most important thing and I think that what I see in a lot of the social impact assessment work that I do is it's a it's an we think about the people and the social impact at, a, at the end rather than the beginning. And one thing I would really love to see is, how do we move? Is it a social value assessment? What is it? that we have up front that becomes as technical a report as transport plan or something like that, that influences design, as opposed to having to retrofit a design because this doesn't work. And I see in in my years in strategic planning, I see a lot of places that have built the building and then go, oh, we're gonna give this little triangle leftover space to the open space. And I think you see the great designers that realize the important and what that it elevates the building and the design and the experience that if you take that as a fundamental part of the building itself and, and what that means. And so I think that um, the ground, like height for me is, is I, I think we see across Sydney, we see across places, if you have great design, you know, height isn't a problem. The problem is we see a lot of examples of where height is just big, bulky and boxy. Mm. I don't know. It's, and so you want facades to be interesting. You want that skyline to create, You, you, you know, people recognise a skyline. People recognise New York, London, Sydney skyline. And that's because there's height and there's those different kind of features that you see that make this kind of vista. Um, and so I think, but the ground plan and think about, this ability for buildings to, to be like a welcome mat into their building, this invitation. Um, one of the best examples I think for me is uh, Christchurch when I was there, because mm-hmm. I go on holidays and look at buildings, is their public library. And how they've, they've thought about the function of the building. So the design is, it's nice. Um, it's been done very about designing for culture and for, um, for Maori um, culture in, in New Zealand. But the ground floor is about a continuation of the public domain on either side. And they've tried to make the building so they use glass. They use space that you can just come and just sit. They And even the things, that's magazines, it's newspapers, it's uh, returns, um, it's like a pickup like so you can you can borrow your book online and come and pick it up it's a cafe so there's all these functions downstairs it's about just moving through or or it's it's about staying for a little while and then moving on but there's this the idea of the design was about continuing the public domain just into the indoor and out so there's this seamless kind of you can see in and out and then as you move up through the building the Activities on each level indicate what's going on. So the first level you walk up these beautiful stairs and you hear this noise because it's the kids' section. And so the idea is there's all these kids, there's a cafe there, there's all this kind of auditorium. So it's this very active kind of space. And, again, having this view into the public space of the round, so it really sort of feels like it's part of the wider public space. And as you go up the building, it gets quite a... So the top of the building is is incredibly quiet because that's the study space and all that sort of stuff. So it's a really, I think, for me, um, a great example of understanding your community, understanding how they use a building mm-hmm. and and the power of design to actually bring people together, to support people in what they need to do. Um, and it's little things like this is how nerdy I can get, but um, it's it's... I noticed as I was walking through the building, small bins at the bottom of each stairwell. And for me, that's an invitation to stay because libraries have always been places where you go, you have to be quiet, you borrow a book, you can't eat or drink. But this one is saying, hey, here's bin's here. Come grab your coffee, grab something to eat and come and stay here and read for the day. That's totally fine. And so it's it's those little gestures that, of course, not ordinary, you know not everyone picks up. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think that that's for me the power of design. But it's a power of design when you understand who your community is and how you experience. And you've got uh, I'm involved in the biophilic design advisory panel with the um, Living Future Institute. And again, it's that idea of biophilia, and that how do we get the same feeling that we have in nature that I think we've all experienced over the last couple of years, we've reconnected with that. How do we bring that into our city spaces? It's the increase in designing for country and understanding. That's really, I think, adding a richness to how we design and I think adding a meaning, a greater meaning to what we're designing. Um, And I think that's amazing.
1: Thanks, April. You've touched on quite a few topics today and I'm sure the audience is so impressed with the breadth of your work. (laughs) And uh, I think I really wanted to begin to conclude by touching on um, what you talked about earlier on and being able to acquire the skills to then begin to advocate. And I think I say that is what if we looped it back to architects in our design process? Mm. If you had an ideal design process that would be able to really push forward many of the ideals and values that you talked about, how would you see it operating different to our current um, common structure? And uh, who would you have involved to participate?
2: Yeah, I think it's a a great question. I think that what tends to happen is despite the complexity and the differing kind of influences on cities and the developments we're doing, We have a very, and I hate the word silo because you hear it all the time, but we have a very siloed approach. We have the architect will go and do their job. The landscape architect will go and maybe they'll talk together a little bit, but they go and do theirs. And then the planner comes in and then someone like myself, who's a social planner, who does community um, and social infrastructure needs studies or understands that, comes in kind of a bit later in the the piece. And I have to say sometimes, I get asked if I can whip out a a community benefits uh, assessment within a couple of weeks because they've forgotten to do it or something like that. So for me, in in my experience, the best projects and I think the most successful projects have been those that have been multidisciplinary from the start. And I think, like I said earlier around politics or decision-making, the more diversity of voices you have around the table, I think the different issues and concerns are raised and I think there's also those different voices create this really interesting and what for me is energising and inspiring these creative tensions. It's about recognising that a house is not just a house. A house is a home. A house needs to expand and contract for multi-generational families. There are cultures in our country that have come from places where multi-generational living is actually the norm. But sometimes our our housing stock doesn't allow for that. You think about Indigenous communities and that expansion and contraction of their family units and that way in which they're, the culture, our Australian First Nations culture and their decision-making process being a collective one. So how are we creating communities and places for to really support and respond to that. I think that's a really important thing. So I think the multidisciplinary um we were talking earlier that I think context is the kicker for me. I think particularly for young architects, for young planners, you're learning. Um, it's about getting as much experience and doing the tasks that you're asked to do. But I'd really encourage all the sort of young architects to to ask why, to really understand how does your task fit into the wider purpose and what is the purpose? Who are you designing for? And get some insights, even from that question, who are we designing for and why are we doing this? And being able to, and it could be just a small task in a bigger process. It could be a, a small activity within a wider master planning process. But I think understanding the context allows you to recognize the value of your contribution and everyone's contribution is valuable into the success of the process. And I think the other thing for me is is um, is being having empathy. Mm-hmm. I think that designing for cities is having empathy for those who use it it's uh it's about all having empathy for those who aren't invited who are excluded from from those places how do we see at the city through a different lens how do we be more empathetic about that um and i think one of the things i think is really interesting for me is understanding this idea of generous cities. What does generosity mean in our cities? And if you replace the word design, how do we design our cities? How do we nurture our cities? I think it becomes a very different conversation. Uh, I think because of the tone and what nurturing actually means. Um, And I think that it also has a more collective feel for how we do it. Um, it's less clinical, I suppose, in some respects, it's more feeling and, and less aesthetic. Um, it's encompassing. So I think that it's, it's don't be, I would suggest, don't be afraid of your feelings. Feel all the feels
1: when you're designing, be really passionate about what you do because people feel that. It's excellent. Um, if we then, span across to then possibly share a few thoughts with our general audience. How can we encourage everyone around us, whether they participate in our profession or not, to seek great public spaces or to begin to have a conversation about the places to make a difference in allowing these places to be born?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's really important to be brave. And I think it doesn't matter where you are within your career. I'd really encourage everybody to to speak up and to be brave and ask the questions, ask why, why are we doing it the way we're doing it? Um, I think that particularly for women in our profession, um, I think that there's a a fear of um, not being seen of those softer skills, what we call them softer skills, um, not being valued and I think they're the things that we absolutely need going forward it's as i said empathy it's having a conversation being open and not being precious and recognizing that everyone has value and and that's not to say that everyone's opinion is equal um and i think that's really important because there are people in our structures that have to make decisions Um, we are beholden to our clients who ultimately make a decision, but we have to give them the information for them to make the best decision, not only for themselves because ultimately there is a financial impulse, but it's also too about what's best for the community as well. So I think for me is understand the context, be brave to ask the questions and tap into your empathy and try and nurture our cities um, rather than just design them.
0: This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our guest in this episode, town planner April McCabe. We're very grateful for your time and thankful for your advocacy for architecture on so many levels throughout your work in government and in your own practice. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad, and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Sally Sue and Jamila Jahangiri. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.